By the time you meet a patient, they have experienced not just the injury that got the call, but a whole lifetime of traumas, large and small, that can impact their mental health and the way that they interact with people trying to help them. How do we take those past traumas into account when dealing with challenging patients? And what strategies work to de-escalate those potentially dangerous situations? That's the question for this episode of Country Hits, Rural Trauma from the Scene to the Emergency Department. I'm Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon, pediatric trauma medical director, and your host for this short podcast series. Our expert in mental health and trauma-informed care is Dr. Angela Jarman. She's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, Davis, where she serves as the director of sex and gender in emergency medicine. Angela's academic interests include trauma-informed care, caring for sex and gender minorities, health disparities and bias in the healthcare system, and sex differences in pulmonary embolism. Here we go. Angela, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to hear about this topic because this is something that I don't know nearly enough about. And I think, I imagine you'd be hard pressed to find anyone in the trauma and trauma surgery world who is actually feels completely comfortable with and up to date on something that I think is actually incredibly important, which is how we manage not the traumatic injury, like the bleeding or the gunshot wound or the burn or the fracture, but the mental state of patients who have come to the emergency room or are being seen on scene for a bad injury, because that is something that is potentially, it's something that's happened to someone who already has a mental illness, but it's also potentially something that is just in so inherently destabilizing that people who didn't carry a, a diagnosis of mental illness can find themselves really unsettled and destabilized in a way that's, that's dangerous for them and potentially harmful or at least complicating for the people taking care of them. Yeah, I totally agree. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here and happy to talk about this topic. I agree with you in general, the medicine is almost the easy, easy part for us, right? We know how to stop the bleed. We know how to immobilize people and we all know ATLS and PALS and the de-escalation and kind of dealing with the more human aspects of traumatically injured patients and um, those with mental health disorders is sometimes a lot more challenging. So I think it's a great thing for us to kind of focus on today. You're a sort of a specialist in trauma-informed care. And I'll be honest, until recently, when I heard about trauma-informed care, I thought it meant knowing how to stop the bleeding. But that's not what trauma-informed care is, right? That is correct. So yeah, um, I should just give a little background on myself because I, I do have a particular interest in trauma-informed care and do a lot of the education in our department on on what that is and how to do it. But my traditional academic background is actually in sex and gender. So I did a fellowship focused on sex and gender and the roles of those as determinants of disease. So I kind of came to trauma-informed care from thinking about vulnerable populations. So thinking about sex and gender minorities, for example, trans patients, trans-identifying patients, or other, other vulnerable populations like victims of sexual assault, sex trafficking, human trafficking, et cetera. But actually, trauma-informed care came out of the violently injured trauma population. So it's kind of an umbrella term that we use, but it really describes a treatment approach, sort of the way that 
that we think about and, and treat trauma patients. And let me just, I'll share, there's a great paper that we reference a lot for our, our residents about trauma-informed care. And we, like I said, we think of it as a treatment approach, but there are essentially four pillars to trauma-informed care. The first is knowledge of the effects of trauma. So that just means understanding that prior traumatic experiences can affect patients and how they react. The second pillar is recognition of the signs and symptoms of trauma. The third pillar is avoidance of re-traumatization. And the fourth is development of policies and procedures that are trauma-informed. So it's kind of sometimes a hard term to define because it doesn't mean one thing, but it means all of those things. And it means trying to see and understand our patient in their context and and, in particular prior traumatic experiences. So especially when we're talking about traumatically injured patients, we know from the data that that those patients tend to be affected multiple times, right? So patients that experience violent trauma are more likely to experience violent trauma again or have in the past. So that's a particular, particularly vulnerable group. Um, and I think that's where this idea kind of came from. But we've since adapted it or co-opted it to apply to a lot of vulnerable populations in the emergency department. And I think those with mental health disorders are a great place and example of where we do apply these principles to try to take empathetic care and and competent care of that population. Yeah. So, I mean, let's maybe just create a hypothetical patient and we can sort of talk through how we take care of them. So say we have a, you know, 40 something woman who, you know, lives under a bridge has a pre-existing schizophrenia diagnosis and now has been, you know, assaulted and brought to the emergency room with with injuries, but also obviously a lot of other things going on. Yeah, that's a great example. So you've also just hit on kind of intersectionality, right? This person has multiple multiple sort of vulnerable identities. You, you noted a, a mental health disorder. Lots of times there's a concurrent substance use disorder. There's a lack of housing. So all of those stack up and make patients vulnerable. So when you see a patient like that, let's imagine that she's been violently injured, for for example, or you, you said, sorry, she'd been assaulted. So you have to kind of think about what experiences has this person had and how can I treat them as a human? So I think particularly in the the level one trauma centers or any trauma center, we are so trained in our algorithm, right? That we're going to do ATLS and we're going to do airway, breathing, circulate. We're going to do our primary survey. We're going to do it right now. We're going to do it in this order. And sometimes that really doesn't work well for patients. That's not a particularly trauma-informed way to approach some of these patients. So, Obviously, for a critically injured patient, that's exactly what you should do, and we shouldn't necessarily be stopping if it's going to affect the patient's safety. But lots of times, these patients are quite stable, and we can kind of take a step back. So imagine how that woman would feel if she comes into the room and we throw her down on a backboard and force her to lie flat, right, if she doesn't want to, and start cutting off her clothes. She may have just been sexually assaulted. She may be sexually assaulted routinely on the streets. You know, who knows? We know that's a particularly vulnerable population imagine you're a man doing that to her so all those things could be incredibly triggering for this patient the 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 knowledge piece from that pillar is thinking about how that could affect her experience and i'm sure you can imagine that that she may react violently she may react by screaming she may react by shutting down she may react in a number of ways because of prior trauma. So we have to have knowledge of that. And then we have to recognize that when we're sort of re-traumatizing the patient and take a step back. So I think 
you know, this patient is a, is a great example of a place where we may actually slow our trauma survey down and say, you know what, clearly her A's and B's and C's are intact. We just got a blood pressure two minutes ago from EMS. She's awake. She's talking. We can, we can take a minute. If she, you know, she has no back pain, she is alert and oriented. We can probably let her even sit up for a minute if that's what it takes to have her kind of cooperate with our exam. So that's a really important thing that sometimes we have to deviate from our protocols and that's a really hard thing to do when you're trained and I think sometimes it's even harder for non-physicians because you and I are lucky that we're in a position that we're kind of running the show so if I say hold on stop you know I'm allowed to do that but you know depending on what my role on the team is and the tasks that I've been assigned I'm very goal-oriented to completing my tasks right Um, and it can be very disruptive to doing that if we kind of stop the flow of things. But oftentimes that's the right thing to do for the patient. I think imagining this patient in the trauma bay is a good place to think about what can we do? Sometimes there's 15 people there, right? And sometimes we don't need that many people. So sometimes we withdraw some people. If men are clearly triggering to a patient, sometimes we withdraw the men, right? We have enough women that we can have an all-female team. And then we engage the patient and kind of try to understand what her needs are. In general, for these patients, a lot of them just need a little bit of autonomy and some decision-making time and space. So a lot of people react when you start cutting their clothes off. And imagine if you've just been raped, for example, you probably wouldn't want to have your clothes cut off in front of 15 people, but maybe giving someone a choice and saying, okay, totally understand. We actually need to get you out of your clothes. Here's why, because we're concerned that you have injuries anywhere on your body. We're going to look you over head to toe because we don't want to miss anything. Are you able to take your clothes off and put this gown on? And lots of times the patients will say, yeah, absolutely. Right. So finding little places to insert choice and autonomy are really good trauma informed approaches. And those work really for most patients, whether we're talking about um, a violently injured patient or a patient with an active mental health disorder. It rings so true. And it's in my own world, you know, with kids, like I think this happens all the time as well, right? Like they do extremely badly with having like 15 strangers surround them and start poking and prodding them. And also, you know, even when we work with, with teenagers, you know, frequently like teenagers with, with autism are Mm -hmm. another population where, right. You want to give them some control over their environment and let them make some choices, all of which kind of have to lead to where you need them to go. But like, it's like, do you want us to do the clothes or do you want you to do the clothes? Right. Right. But at least then they make an affirmative choice. Like, it's like, I think about it, you're bowling, right. You know, the bumpers on the sides, like, I kind of sometimes think of myself as the bumpers. Like we have to stay between the lines because this is what's reasonable and this is what's safe. But like we can do it on the left side, the right side, the middle, whatever works as long as we're moving in the right direction. And I think that's such a great analogy. We, we talk about it a lot because in pediatrics, we tend to be a lot better at this actually, I think because we recognize that we you're traumatizing a small child when you pounce on them with 15 people and have big trauma shears in your hand to cut off their clothes. So we're, I think, a little bit better on the pediatric side about recognizing stability and then making adaptations to our algorithms for trauma, whereas in adults, we're a little less good at that. But I think, again, remembering that we should be taking a universal approach and assume that all of our patients have some history of trauma and taking that into consideration as we do their evaluation would really serve many of our patients better. I wonder if one of the reasons why we're better with a two-year-old is because we're like, well, if push comes to shove, like I can push harder, right? Like 
I, I will get what I want from this two-year-old, right? In yeah. a way that like a 250-pound bodybuilder who's been using PCP comes into the emergency department and it's like, if he decides he doesn't like my plan, like we have a problem. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so how do, you, how do you manage that? How do you think about like safety for yourself and keeping the patient safe and the team safe uh, yeah. in a situation where like a patient just is, is not in control? Such an important point. I would I would argue also with children that we are are a bit more empathetic. You know what I mean? Like we recognize fear in the child more easily than we recognize fear in the adult because it may be manifested as aggression. And we may essentially what you're implying here is that like you feel scared, right? Like you're a little bit concerned about your safety and the safety of your team. And and we always need to make the disclaimer that that is paramount, right? So nothing that I'm saying today should ever mean that you put yourself or your team in physical danger. And so certainly there's some nuance about when it's okay just to take a step back and try verbal de-escalation versus when you have to go to physical or chemical restraint. What I would say there is everybody that we're talking to is a trained medical professional, right? And we can pretty clearly see the difference between someone who has an active psychosis and someone who is just simply agitated. Does that make sense? So if I have a patient who has an active psychotic disorder who's responding to internal stimuli, who believes that, for example, I am the devil and I'm trying to hurt them, then that patient is going to hurt me potentially. Um, and that's probably a place where talking them down is not going to work. And that, and we do see those patients very frequently in the emergency department. And, and we're very well-versed in how to safely restrain those patients. And often that does re require both physical and chemical restraint. And, you know, unfortunately that's in the news a lot these days about unsafe ways to do that. But luckily in the hospital setting, and, and I think in the, in the pre-hospital setting, when it comes to emergency medical providers, we're pretty good at that. So you always ha have the caveat that if you feel, if you are truly unsafe and that's your clinical, you know, analysis or, or, or perspective about a patient, then you may then you may need to take steps to keep yourself safe that involve having extra people and physically restraining someone. So that's not the wrong answer if that is the the scenario to keep everyone safe. But I think what we're focused on more is that big group in the middle where there is the opportunity to, to intervene. So, you right. know, we and so many like th that group that like they're agitated and if you push them the wrong way, they'll become unsafe. Sure. If you push exactly. them the right way, they'll like take off their shirt for you, right? right? So like, how do you, right, how do you navigate that group? Yeah, and part of that comes with experience too, right? And and I always like try to give at least one effort, you know, at, at verbal de-escalation and kind of see where you're getting. But, you know, if a patient swings at you or swings at staff, charges someone, throws things, right? Like those are all markers that you're like, okay, we're headed where this is unsafe territory. But it, I always feel like it's kind of worth, worth a try. And sometimes... I think we've talked about this in other um, conferences with our residents. Sometimes that person that connects with the patient is not you. And this is a good place to check your ego. So, for example, in our emergency department, we have a plethora of really talented and committed mental health technicians. And so sometimes they'll have a rapport with the patient that I just don't have for whatever reason. Maybe it's the scrubs. Maybe it's the outfit that is triggering them from some past trauma, from some person in authority telling them what to do. Sometimes 
there's another person that can work with them and get a lot farther than I can. And this is a place where I have to check my ego and say, okay, like (laughs) that's working. Here's what I need. If you can get that done, for example, getting the patient out of their clothes and into the bed, then great. Like I'll step out, you know, again, this is all assuming that the patient is hemodynamically stable, right. And not, not critically injured. But a lot of these patients that we see that are having mental health crises are, are certainly clinically stable and there's room for us to try some of these strategies to keep them safe and to keep us safe and to avoid any kind of chemical or or physical restraint. What do you think about having like known faces around like, you know, somebody from their own life who can communicate with them better, maybe. So helpful. Yeah. I think that's really, really helpful. I mean, you brought up the example of, for, for example, the autistic patient in a pediatric patient or an adult patient, you know, I just think of an example recently where I had a patient with severe autism and I was in another room and I just heard screaming, you know, screaming at the top of the lungs and I ran out of the room, you know, what, what in the world is going on? And it was a severely autistic patient who had been put in an ambulance and sent to the ER without their caregiver. And so I actually luckily was able to kind of verbally de-escalate because I went in the room and I guess I'm going into a caveat here, but I went in the room to say, you know, what's going on? And this was a female patient and she had been told that she had to take her pants off. She didn't want to take her pants off. And so there were actually two nurses in the room, another tech, everyone kind of flanking the room, like, ah, like what's going on here? And just kind of telling her that she had no choice. And so I was able to go in send a few people out of the room, explain what we needed and even do some bargaining, right? Like we, would you like a snack? Would you, what do you need? Right? Like I'm happy to trade crackers um, for compliance with whatever I need to safely do my exam. And then 15 minutes later, bless her heart, the caregiver came roaring in and just said they wouldn't let me in the ambulance. There wasn't room for her in the ambulance. So she had had to come by private vehicle. She had to park. And as soon as the caregiver was there, the patient was a totally different person because she was really insecure and she was really scared i'm trying to remember she may have been visually impaired as well so this person was like her right arm and without that she was terrified so i I think having those support people and allowing them into clinical scenarios is super duper important it, that was one of the hardest things about COVID when we were had a strict no visitors policy because for a lot of our patients with dementia, older patients, or any kind of cognitive disability, and some of our mental health disorder patients as well, those support people are really crucial. So I, I love trying to leverage them and sometimes even communicating with the caregiver. Here's what we need. Like, can you help us make that happen? And then they can give us other ideas, you know, on how and how to get that done. What are other like de-escalation strategies, right? If, yeah. if you walk into a room and it just feels like things are going the wrong way, like yeah. what, what's kind of your toolbox for getting things back on track? There's a couple things. And again, these are all couched in sort of your gestalt and judgment. But one of the things is is just removing people, right? So we, we have a thing in our ED that's called a code gray. And a code gray is like a behavioral health alert. So so if, if someone is escalating, they'll call a code gray. But what happens when you call a code gray is that at least 15 people respond to the room, right? And for some patients, a show of force is helpful. 
right? And does make them be less agitated. There is a breed of patient, you know, for whom that is helpful. But for a lot of patients, that's just even more agitating and kind of pushes things up. So the first thing I'll do is remove people if I feel that it's safe to do so. And that doesn't mean that I send them away. It means I get them out of the view of the patient. So I maybe pull them out of the room, push them to the side because the doors are glass, but they're still there because I have an eye on safety for both myself and the team. The second is to just you know, kind of try and speak to the patient and say, hey, what's going on, right? Because I think one of the things that's happening when people are agitated is, is that they don't feel like they're being listened to. So that's always something I try. If it feels safe sitting down in the room and saying, you know, tell me what's going on. Because a lot of times I hear, you know, they told me I can't do this or I just really need my phone or I'm hungry and nobody will remove food. I'm cold, whatever, you know, all these kind of creature comforts. It's sometimes something very simple and no one has taken the time to kind of understand what the person's need is and they're escalating because they don't feel heard. They don't feel valued. All these human things that are pretty easy. So those are some of the staple strategies. Again, that doesn't always work, but but at least half the time it does. And, and all the simple things they taught us in medical school, sit down, take your time, you know, sometimes turning down the lights a little bit so that we don't have, you know, the blaring fluorescent lights and, and 10 people behind you. Sometimes you can connect with the patient. And again, if there's another person with whom they have a good rapport, sometimes I'll pull people out and send that person in, you know, and see if they can make any more progress. I'm reminded of a situation not so long ago where like people were just seemed like they were getting really amped up. And I heard this, you know, about this patient in the emergency room and everyone was being very difficult. And it was, you know, I was sort of warned to go into the room and I, I went into the room and I the lights were down and we were sort of trying. Clearly, the anxiety was high. There was like a patient and a parent, and I started talking to them. And then it like suddenly dawned on me they they didn't actually know what I was saying, <laughs> and like we hadn't figured out that they needed an interpreter. Yes, right? <laughs> like someone at some point had been like, "Do you speak English?" And they'd been like, "Yes." And then from then on, it'd been like la 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 la, and they like they were getting agitated because they didn't understand and they weren't comfortable sort of making yeah. that clear. So like yeah, these little a, things, right? Make sure they actually speak the language that you're talking right. about. <laughs> right. Or may, you know, are they in pain? Like, are there simple like creature comforts that we have neglected that are, are causing, you know, people tend to escalate for a reason and it tends to be because they're not feeling hurt or not getting what they need. Sometimes it's not, but, but we should, you know, try those things first. And I would also add, you know, I do think I'm not, I want to be clear that I'm not ever suggesting that, you know, we deserve to be abused by patients or anything like that. I think boundaries are really helpful. But again, what it comes down to, certainly as an emergency provider, is safety, right? So sometimes people are frustrated with patients that are cursing, that are yelling, that are pacing the room. But but listen, if they're not hitting me or hitting you or hitting themselves, like, that's fine, right? Like, if you need a minute, that's totally fine. So sometimes I'll even just pull people out of the room, close the door and say, I'm going to give you a few minutes and then I'm going to come back and we're going to talk, right? So the boundary is you're not allowed to be disrespectful. You're not allowed to be violent. But if you, you know, need to have a minute and you need to yell or you need to say choice words, like that's not endangering anyone, right? Yeah. And so that's not, a, that's not a reason for me to, to, to sort of escalate our strategies, if that makes sense, if the patient themselves is safe and if the staff is safe. Right. Like 
just if they're being like angry or rude, right, within reason. But I guess that brings up an interesting question, a little bit maybe off topic, but I think very much something that's on the front of people's minds now is, you know, how much are we supposed to put up with, (laughs) right? Because, you know, me as like a white male surgeon, I don't have to put up with that much, right? You know, yeah. like, honestly, like, in, like if people are mean to me, like it's because they don't like me or they're mad at the world, but it's not because I'm black and it's not because I'm a woman, right? Like, yeah. and, and, and we know that people of color and particularly trainees of color, we know that women get a lot of abuse in the workplace that I think historically we've said is like, well, that's just the price of doing business in medicine. But should it be? increasingly we're saying like, well, maybe that's wrong. And I think that's a, a really good conversation to be having. Like how, what, what, how do you set a boundary and say like, okay, you can be angry, but you can't be like grossly derogatory to me or to my trainees. You can't yeah. be blatantly racist to us, right? So yeah, two things. I mean, I actually am a pretty big believer in boundaries. And I have had lots of our staff comment on my mom voice, right? That there's a different, that I take on a totally different tone. I mean, I think of a patient recently who he was like yelling out because he, wa- he wanted something, not something medical, like a water or something. And, and no one had, had responded to him yet. So he threw a cup of water outside his room, like into the hall, trying to hit someone. And that's totally unacceptable, right? Because that's a safety concern. And I went in and told him that and closed his door and almost kind of was more like a timeout, like, hey, nope, that's not acceptable. That will not, that behavior will not be rewarded with whatever creature comfort you're asking for right now that's not integral to your care, right? But again, we have to think about this. So I, I, I do feel like a mama bear as the attending in the sense that I'm there to, to protect both the staff and the trainees against blatant sexism, blatant racism. But that all, again, is it has to be in the context of what's the clinical situation, right? I am one of the biggest feminists that you'll ever meet. And I, I work really hard to be anti-racist, but I have a If I have a patient with a head bleed or a TBI or a patient who is floridly psychotic at that moment or, you know, intoxicated, like I can't not care for them because they say something that offends me because that happens all the time. You know, it may not even be directed at me, but I hear verbal racial slurs all the time from that type of patient. And so, again, it comes down to do no harm, right? Like I am a highly trained clinician and I'm there to take care of them and they need my care and I'm not going to withhold my care because they are not in a uh, respectful frame of mind. If, however, it's a awake and alert, normal person with none of those, none of those things going on, right. That has a minor complaint that believes that they're allowed to be abusive. Then that's where the boundaries come in. Cause they're not right. <laughs> like my job is to keep you safe. But you know, if the, if the complaint is something really minor and you are safe, we do not have to put up with that. So it's a, it's a tough line to walk and it happens not infrequently that slurs, usually most commonly racial slurs um, or sometimes slurs directed at LGBTQ folks um, or, you know, presumed folks get thrown around. And I always just try to go find that person later and, and just recognize that something hurtful was said and that I appreciate 
you know, them continuing to care for the patient or that they don't have to continue to care for the patient if they don't want to. I think that's a, a reasonable way to honor and value your team is to say, hey, I don't expect you to be abused. So we can sub in someone else in this situation if, if it's one of these sick patients that we need to continue to, you know, fulfill our obligation to take care of them. And I think that's such a great point, too, that when you talk about you know mental health issues and and how we manage mental health, like it is, there's a component and probably the dominant thing that we worry about is our patients and their mental health, but also the mental health of the team. Right. And like, if you're, if you have a patient who is abusing a member of the staff, like we have to recognize that that is impactful on that staff member as well. And, and on potentially on their mental health and the people we work with, I I guarantee you having been in medicine for a while, right? Like not everybody is like on a rock solid foundation from a mental health standpoint. Right. And so we have to look out for that in our our teammates as well. Well, and I think you're bringing up another really important point regarding trauma-informed care is that we have to think about how our past experiences affect how we relate to a patient, right? So if I had a patient you know, I don't know, say some particularly derogatory thing or try to hit me. And then I have another patient that reminds me of that patient or says something similar. Like, definitely, I'm going to probably react a lot more strongly to that than maybe then you would, right? Like, it's a hot button issue for me if someone comments on my sex or gender as a woman in medicine, right? So, so we have to also think about keeping ourselves well and not, I think, displacing our prior traumas because there is certainly an amount of trauma that we experience certainly working in the emergency department, working in the pre-hospital setting, working in the trauma setting, just because we witness so so much um, tragedy, right? And trying to think about how that affects our interactions with patients and and essentially trying to keep it out of the room. Because I think we're trained, we have a higher standard for ourselves, and it's not okay for us to be taking taking out prior experiences on the patient. Such a great point, right? And be, and just, but be mindful of the fact that like, if we're feeling angry at a patient, if we're feeling triggered, right? Like that, that, that we should be thoughtful about why that is and think about, you know, how our prior interactions have, have informed us. I mean, this is, this has been so fascinating because I think like I've learned so much about what trauma informed care is. I feel more informed about it and now i see it everywhere yeah (laughs) short conversation right yeah (laughs) well that's why i can speak about this being a gender expert right because these things transcend all these identities like the the core components are the same and and what i kind of tell people is trauma-informed care is like an in vogue term these days this is not different than what they taught us in med school which was like to be an empathetic listener and, and to essentially like be a good doctor so they taught us to sit down right they taught us to listen to the patient. They taught us not to interrupt them. They taught us to, to be empathetic. So, so this is really some basic human kindness that we just have to remember that certain patients, sometimes it's harder to extend that to them. But I, but I love the comparison you had of the kid because nobody, like we feel, we feel so much for the children, right? We don't want them to cry. We don't want to upset them. We don't want to traumatize them. But what about the adults, right? Like it's in a lot of ways, the same thing that we should try to take that approach, that empathetic approach for our adult patients as well, particularly those that come from vulnerable populations. Yeah. I mean, it's, we've all been a kid, right? So it's easier for us to empathize with kids, but maybe that's the trick, right? Look at every patient as if they're four years old. And and check your biases too. That's another point I would make that just because someone um, is big or has a certain skin color, et cetera, like doesn't mean that they're scary. So that's a thing that we have to be careful of too. Obviously, safety is number one, but we want to be 
be cognizant of the biases that you might be bringing to, you know, an encounter. Well, thank you so much. We will put a link to the paper you reference in the show notes for this great. episode. This has been so great. Thank you so oh, much for, uh, for, for taking me. the time. Anytime. Very happy to be here. And thanks for uh, the audience. Every All the work that you guys do is so important. We couldn't do it without you. Country Hits, Rural Trauma from the Scene to the Emergency Department, is a production of Wisconsin's South Central Regional Trauma Advisory Council. Go Badgers! If you enjoyed this episode, there are seven more, so check those out too. And please, rate and review the show so others can find it. Most importantly, tell your friends. This podcast is produced by me, Jonathan Kohler, and Ben Ethan, with production assistance from Terry Hoover. It's mixed and edited by the great J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Lori Silverberg and Nicole Jennings at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and to Shin Hiroshi, Diana Farmer, Joe Galante, and Nate Cooperman at the University of California, Davis. And an extra special thanks to Dan Williams and the members of the South Central RTAC for deciding they wanted this podcast and what they wanted it to be about. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. Stay safe out there.